Our scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Daniel. We chose a traditional Mother's Day text today for us to reflect on. You know, it's a real upper for Mother's Day today to, to uh, think about this text. Um, we just sang a moment ago, only, only thou art holy. And I want to just ask you to kind of enter into the presence of God for a moment and, and to think about his, his holiness uh, Jackie Hill Perry, the 32-year-old hip-hop artist and uh, poet and writer from St. Louis, who lived in Chicago for just a little bit, has recently been reflecting on the holiness of God, particularly in our, our uh, what you might call our sexualized urban culture. When she was about seven years old, um, somebody sexually abused her. And she tells that story uh, with humility and says it's, it's hard to describe the indescribable, especially considering age. I don't remember how he got me to follow him into the basement. And she goes on. But later in her book on holiness, she says these words, she writes these words. If God is holy, then he can't sin. And if God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. And if he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being that there is? And part of what she's saying is that it was really when she began to see the holiness of God in a new way, she realized that he was the, that God is the one entity in the world 
who's not going to take advantage of her, who's not going to seek to demean her or abuse her, and it gave her trust. If God is holy, then he can't sin against me. I want to talk today just about the the radical holiness of God and think about what this idea of God's holiness means for us in our daily lives. What are the implications for us? Especially I want you to be thinking about God's holy restorative love. That is, holiness is also for you to make you a more complete person than you are, were, before you encountered him. Jackie Perry was given over to sexual promiscuity, to, to drug addiction, alcohol addiction, pornography addiction, and then about 14 years ago she met Jesus, and those things began to change. Part of it was the holiness of God. There's four areas I just want to look at with you today about how God's holiness affects us. In verses 1 and 2 of this little section, I want you to think about how, it, how God's holiness affects our attitude. And then verses 3 and three to 5, I want you to think about how God's holiness affects our community. So if His holiness affects our attitude, and then our community, verses 3 to 5. And then verses 6 to 8 is what I'm going to call the, the logic of the Lamb, or the lessons of the Lamb. There's some images there in verses 6 to 8 that, that speak of, I'm going to say primarily of our freedom, that God has called you out of a kind of slavery to make you free. And then finally, um, not just how God's holiness affects our attitudes and our community and our freedom, but how it affects our relationships as well, verses 9 to 13. So will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, you see the hearts that are here. You know the backgrounds of each one of us. You know that you know the things that have been done in, in uh, secret, in dark places, both by us and to us. The ways that hearts here and, and spirits have been broken by the invasive corruption of the world, you see by your spirit as you hover hearts that need to be redeemed and healed by your restorative love and holiness. So we pray that you would restore and redeem today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verses one and two, I'm just making a very simple claim that God's holiness affects our attitude in this way is that holiness shapes the humility of our hearts. Now, that might seem a little bit of an odd claim to begin with, but one of the things that Paul has been wrestling with in the sexualized urban culture of Corinth is not just that that Corinth has kind of seeped into the church, but that as the culture of Corinth has invaded the church, the Corinthians have gotten proud of it. (laughs) Like, look at us. 
It was a city that was known to have, or estimated at one point to have a thousand prostitutes, Corinth was. And the word Corinthianize actually became uh, synonymous with, with sexual immorality. So if you Corinthianized someone, you committed sexual immorality. There's a couple of terms I just want to point out in verses 1 and 2. If you look there in, in, on, the, on the screen, no, not on the screen. If you look there in your, there we go, thank you. If you look on the screen there, you can see the words to the throne of God above, which uh, we're just going to sing real quick. I'll do a, a little solo here. We'll see if they come up. But if you have a paper Bible or an electronic device, it says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the word there for sexual immorality is the word porneia, which, as you can figure out, is where we get our word for porn, pornography. So Corinth had a porn problem. Not a, not a porn problem the way that it means in our culture today, but if you think of porneia as kind of an umbrella there it is. If you think of pranetia as kind of an umbrella term for a number of different kinds of sexual promiscuity. It's not just, it doesn't mean just one kind of sexual immorality. It means a, a, a wide variety. That's why he says it's actually reported among you that there's a, a porn issue in the church that's not even reported among the pagans, which is that a man has his father's wife. In other words, he's sleeping with his um, stepmother. And uh, what Paul is saying here is that there is this pride that is associated to it. So it's not just what was happening in Corinth is it was such a sort of sexually liberated culture that it wasn't just that, hey, do whatever you want to with your body. It was also take pride in showing how free you are. So it's easy for us in North America to have this kind of decline narrative where we feel like, man, where's our culture going? A lot of people who were raised in very conservative cultures feel like, man, we're just sliding into sexual immorality. Well, when you look at Corinth, they were far past where we are even today. The problem that he's, he's picking out here is the arrogance side of it. Because it's one thing to be caught in a sin, and it's another thing to be proud that you're caught in a sin. It's one thing to be corrected for something that you've done wrong, and it's another thing to not be willing to be corrected, and rather to say, no, this shows my freedom, which is what the Corinthians were doing. And some people actually argue that, that pride was the problem in Corinth. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 18, for instance, he says, some of you are arrogant, a little bit before that. Chapter 4, verse 6, he says that you are puffed up. Chapter 5, verse 6, he says your boasting is not good. Chapter 5, verse 2, he says you are arrogant. Another way to think of it is the church that's not humble has lost sight of God's holiness. If we don't have a humble heart in the presence of God, then we haven't, we've been blinded in some ways to his otherness, his purity, and his holiness. And the, the appropriate response to the holiness of God, especially when your heart starts to be convicted, is mourning. That's what he's saying, I wish I could see a little more of. 
is, it's, it's not that God wants us always to be mourning. It's that he wants to take the mourning that we have over our brokenness and over our sin and then turn it into joy because we have been set free. Maybe you remember in Isaiah 6, maybe you've read that part of the scripture in Isaiah 6, there's this moment when, when Isaiah writes of the presence of God in the, in the temple and it, he says, he's, he sees the singing of the angels singing what we just sang Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the, the, the response is this, that Isaiah says, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. When you come into the presence of God, it's appropriate to tremble. We just sang, again, there's no one like you. There's no one who, God has not just a passive holiness, he has a consuming act of holiness. That's why, that's why the angel takes a, a, a coal and puts it on Isaiah's lips and says, you've been cleansed. Your sins have been atoned for. That's what I'm talking about when I'm thinking of restorative holiness. So the very first principle, the principle I just want you to see here is that God's holiness needs to affect our attitudes. Think of how um, offensive in some ways an arrogant church is to the surrounding culture if we're just prideful. And humility is what is to characterize the church here. So how's, how's your humility and are there areas in particular that you need to mourn right now? The holiness of God has to affect our attitudes. The second principle here is that God's holiness cleanses the community. This is the kind of the second half of verse 2, and then going on into verse 5. So God's holiness is to affect our attitudes, but it's also to affect our community. Uh, last week, we talked a little bit about the, the tenderness of Paul, where he speaks of them as my beloved children. He's appealing to them, and he's admonishing them. Here's the tough side of the Apostle Paul. This is why he says in the second half, of what we looked at last week, he talks about the, the kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but in power. Listen to what he says. He says, let him who has done this, that is, who has taken his father's wife, let him be removed from among you. Now, it's very easy to think of this as harshness on the, on the side of the Apostle Paul, like, man, he's tough. But, and we'll see this in a minute. But what he's also speaking of is the way that that arrogant hardness of heart that they have affects the, the overall culture of the church. So he says, you need to remove this person. And then, I mean, this sounds like threats from Paul. Though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And if I'm present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, here are some very troubling words. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, that's a lot, and it can be confusing. What does it mean to hand him, to deliver him over to Satan? Essentially what it means is that there's a point at which someone's own behaviors have, been, have become so 
toxic that the best thing for them and for the community is to say, we're done with you. Now, it's very hard for us as North Americans to think about that because we think of uh, ourselves as autonomous beings. <laughs> like we're, we, we're autonomous from God. We're autonomous from other people. My decisions don't have any bearing on you. But what, what Paul is saying is know that there's a kind of toxicity that can come into a culture like a church that if you don't deal with it, it actually becomes harmful for the whole church. I'll just give a couple of examples so that it's a little easier to understand this or see this. When, what, what the Apostle Paul mentions like down here in verse 10, which is a little bit later, he says, I'll start in verse, chapter 5, verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all, meaning that if that's for me, just take a message, please. Lawrence, just teasing. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you'd have to go out of the world. Then he says, he's, he mentions a bunch of what I'll call kind of toxic sins. Idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, or a swindler. So think of alcoholism or drunkenness. What happens with alcoholism is it's, it starts as kind of a pleasure for the person who's drinking. And it, reaches, it goes over a kind of limit to where it really starts to affect the other people around them. To the point where the best thing that you can do for an alcoholic at a certain point is to say, we don't want to have anything to do with you until you solve this. They, they call it having to hit rock bottom. One of my friends, his wife said to him, because he had begun drinking and was going farther and farther into it, and she just said, if you don't stop this, I'm going to leave you. So he had to choose between the bottle and his wife, and he chose his wife, went to AA. Anyway, this is the kind of sin that Paul's talking about here that becomes toxic for other people. I'll give you one other example that's in the list there, which is a reviler. So you, if, you, if you've been in a locker room, then you've been around a reviler, okay? A reviler is someone who takes someone else and consistently cuts them down and demeans their sense of self-worth and the idea of them being created in the image of God. And this, this happens in, in our popular and political culture by assigning a name to someone, sometimes that's a demeaning name, and then continuously cutting them down. Let me put it in the marriage context. This is called emotional abuse or verbal abuse. So if a woman is married to an emotionally or verbally abusive man, she begins to lose her sense of self-dignity and self-worth and starts to get cut down over and over and over again. And at a certain point, when that's happening, it's better for that person to leave the husband. We can talk about that later, whether you agree with that or not. But there's a kind of abuse that can... So that word reviler, so these are... Think of these sins that Paul starts to mention as sins that are socially destructive. They start, think, of the, think of how alcoholism affects somebody who had an alcoholic father or mother. Generations of impact on them. Or if you're around somebody who consistently is tearing other people down, at a certain point it's good to say, you know what? I don't want to be around you anymore. 
can't be around you anymore. That's what Paul is saying here. And he's saying that, there's, that there are cases in which this kind of toxic behavior becomes so pervasive that you just have to say, you're out of our relationship. He calls that turning the person over to Satan. But notice that the purpose of turning the person over to Satan is to redeem them so that they might be saved. Look at verse 5, says, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Technically, what we're talking about here is sometimes called um, spiritual discipline or church discipline. And the Reformed kind of uh, stream of, of the church historically has been very intentional about saying that the church needs to, to have a clear, redemptive process to help people in, when they're caught in sin like this. It's not punitive. It's actually for the person. Like it's actually, part of what's happening here is that the holiness of God is meant to enter into the culture of the church so that it helps people become more holy. That's the goal. Now, Paul's super strong here, and he's like, I've already turned this person over to Satan, but his goal, and actually, when you read 2 Corinthians, you find out the person does come back to Jesus that he's talking about here. So, why, how does, how does God's holiness affect us? Number one, it affects our attitudes. We have to have humility. The second thing here is that it affects our community. We have to be cleansed from extreme cases of unrepentant sin at a certain point, you have to say, I can't associate with you anymore. Again, it's very hard for our, us in our culture to understand this. The third thing I want to show you about where God, how God's holiness affects us is that it affects our freedom. Not to restrict our freedom, but to set us free from slavery. Okay? In other words, there's... And, God purchased us. There's a couple images here in verses 6 to 8 which are a little bit confusing. Um, there's an imagery of the leaven. Let's turn to verse 6 if you can. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, leavens the whole lump, keep going. And then he says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump you are, as you are really unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now, those images are a little confusing for us, but I'm just gonna, I want to unpack them for a second. Two images. Both of the images go back to Exodus 12 and the history of Israel. So after Joseph was in, um, was in Egypt, you get to Exodus chapter 1, and it says, there, there arose a king who knew not Joseph. And then it says, like, the people started to spread out. And then what happened is the Jewish people were persecuted, enslaved, and beaten down. And as they were enslaved, if you remember, um, Moses comes and says, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, nah, we're not going to. In fact, you guys are just lazy, and we're going to make you. They just sort of enslave them even more. This, this is where God comes in and says that he is going to set the people free. And he sends these um, ten plagues, turning the water to blood, sends frogs and lice and flies and livestock boils and hail and locusts and darkness. Um, some of you have been outside. There's some new kind of like mayfly or something that is like invading Chicago. And uh, 
Yeah, it's the curse of God upon the city of Chicago that hasn't seen a, a day of sunshine for like 40 days or something. What happens in, in um, Egypt is that God says that he's going to set his people free, and he does it with the final plague, which was the killing of the firstborn of all the children in Egypt. And it's an interesting image because God has called the Israelites his own firstborn. So the imagery of the leaven and the imagery of the Passover lamb come from Exodus 12. And you got to kind of think of it as, well, think of it this way. There was an event that happened where God rescued his people from slavery. And then there's the subsequent remembering of the event that we call the Passover as well. So both of them are kind of called the Passover. The leaven part of it is this idea of like, I don't know if you've ever tried to scramble to get out of the door, and it's like, okay, we got to move. The imagery of the leaven is we don't have time for the, to allow the bread to rise. Just leave the leaven out, like, because it takes a while, you know? Somebody, some of you made, like, friendship bread or other kinds of bread, and it just takes a long time. I have no idea because I've never made bread, but I've heard that it takes a very long time. What he's saying is, what, what Paul is saying is that he's pointing back to this event where the idea of leaven was get out now and the idea of the Passover lamb was that the blood of a lamb was shed in order to set the people free. And any of the Egyptians who did not have the blood over the door, in every single home in Egypt, someone died. The oldest son died. So there's this tremendous wailing in Egypt. In the midst of the judgment is salvation. And what Paul is saying is, because he's focused on the cross, he's saying, the blood of Jesus has already set you free from your sins and immorality. So if you got leaven, that is sin in your life, get it out right now. <laughs> Hurry up. So there's almost like two lessons here. One is lesson one, which is leave the leaven of your own sin out of your life. If there's some area of sin that's unrepentant and unconfessed, get it out now. And the other one is love the lamb. Leave the leaven, leave the leaven and, and, and love the lamb. In other words, and this is why I say God's holiness affects our freedom, he set you free. He set you free so that you don't have to be a swindler. You don't have to be a liar. You don't have to be a drunkard. You don't have to be sexually immoral. He set you free. You're free. So when he says, celebrate, next slide. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying, Celebrate the fact that the blood has already been shed for you and you're free. There's an urgency once the blood of Christ has been applied and he's been slaughtered to being set free. In one sense, you could think theologically this means salvation and sanctification. The once for all, it's not like Jesus has to keep dying for you. He did it once for all. And you just need to remember it. Come back to him. 
John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's holiness is a restorative holiness that affects our attitudes, that affects our community, that sets us free. You're no longer slaves. All right, God's holiness shapes our humility. It shapes our community. It purchases our freedom. And then finally, um, God's holiness starts now. God's holiness starts now. Like right now, you have to think about how his holiness will affect you. And what he does in verses 9 to 13 is he shows two ways. One is, so there's this tendency for the church to do two things. One is to pull out of the world and then become just like the world. But in John 17, when Jesus prays for the disciples, he says, he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you'll make them holy in the world. What's happening in Corinth is they look just like the, the culture of Corinth, but they're in one sense really focusing too much on their lack of holiness. I didn't say that well, but let me put it this way. It cuts two directions. God's holiness for outsiders means proximity and tender love. God's holiness for those in the church who are unrepentant means distance. So what Paul says is I'm not telling you to get out, I'm not telling you to pull completely out of the the world or not to associate with any of these kind of people. I'm just telling you not to associate with people who are so-called brothers. Look at verse 9. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, that is, those who are caught in this kind of pornography, pornographic lifestyle, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters who need to go out of the world. So what he's really saying is you should still be, you need to be proximate to people who are quote-unquote unholy. Otherwise, you have to go out of the world. Think of Jesus' life. Who did Jesus spend time with? Why did Jesus get criticized? He got criticized because he spent time with the sinners, with the prostitutes, with the sexually immoral. Paul isn't saying don't hang with someone greedy. He's saying, because otherwise you have to go out of the world. You'd have to leave Chicago if you, can't, if you don't want to associate with anyone that's greedy, right? He's saying don't hang with a so-called brother or sister who is unrepentant. On the, on the positive proximate side for a second, which is in verses 9 and 10, let's just, I want you to meditate for a second on the, some of the words from a great theologian named Johnny Cash, who um, grew up on an Arkansas cotton farm and struggled really hard with alcohol and amphetamines and barbiturates. Um, he says, I took them for seven years because I liked the feel of it. But he has this great little song that's called Man in Black, and he says, well, you wonder why I always dress in black. Why you never see bright colors on my back? Why does my appearance have to seem to have a somber tone? Well, there's a reason for the things that I have on. I wear black for the poor and the beaten down. Living in the hopeless, hungry side of town, I wear it for the prisoner who's long paid his crime, but is there because he's a victim of the times. 
I wear black for those who have never read or listened to the words that Jesus said about the road to happiness through love and charity. Why you didn't think that he was talking straight to you and me. In other words, what Johnny Cash is saying is what Paul is saying or the vice versa, which is that we should be near those who are hungry, those who are poor and beaten down. Johnny Cash often liked to tell people, you can be redeemed. We have to be close to the world in order to say you can be redeemed. But then he's saying that we're also not to mirror the world. So we're not to exit the world, but we're not to mirror the world either. In other words, God's holiness means tough, redemptive love right now. There are times to walk away from those who wear the name of Jesus. There are times to walk away from those who claim the name of Jesus. Not in arrogance, not in mock holiness, not in arrogant spirituality. Martin Luther's 95 Thesis, the first one, he says that the entirety of our lives is to be a life of repentance. The difference between the one that is walked away from and the one who is doing the walking away is simply that one is willing to repent and the other one is not. This isn't like, oh, I'm not a hypocrite. It's that I'm repenting of my hypocrisy. Here's the challenging words, verses 11 to 13. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of the brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality. For what, I, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Another way to think of this is the world expects the church to be holy. And so it's mission critical that the church is holy. The world sees the hypocrisy and also needs to see the repentance. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he's guilty of, not, he says, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed. He's not saying like one time. He's talking about somebody who continues to repeat the pattern of unrepentant sexual immorality. That's what he's saying. And that there's been a process of saying, look, I, I, I'm coming to you as a brother in Christ. I've seen some of your lifestyle. I'm asking you to change. And then two people coming. You may ask, has this ever happened at Holy Trinity? The answer is yes, there have been times in which a process has been gone through one-on-one, two-on-one, and then eventually to say, particularly with some men who were spiritually and emotionally abusing their husbands and were unrepentant, to say, we have nothing to do with you. Is that easy? No. But it's mission critical that the church is holy. In Leviticus, God says, you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. This is what redemptive, restorative love looks like. It doesn't just leave you where you are. It picks you up. Yes, in alcoholism, it picks you up. It cleans off the vomit. Puts you down and lays you to sleep. And then at a certain point says, I can't do this anymore because it's no good 
for you. So I just want to ask you today to take the holiness of God seriously. To let his holiness affect your attitude with humility. To let his holiness mean that our community has to be cleansed. But also with the lamb, that there's, there's a finality to your freedom. You're free. Don't, get, don't feel sucked into the toxicity of your own sinfulness. You've been free. You've got to keep repenting. And that there are implications for your relationships. Now, a holy God shapes a humble church. But a holy God also shapes a holy church as well. Just a couple of, impli- just a couple of applications here. Let's be humble. Let's not be arrogant. Let's confess our sins to one another, as it says in James, that you might be healed. Secondly, is there someone that you should be spending more time with? Or different, put differently, dress in black, okay? Dress for the people who need the compassionate love of Jesus and be around the swindlers and the idolaters and the sexually immoral and spend time with them. Because they need the restorative love of Christ. But then also, pray through if there's ever a moment in your life or relationship in which you have to say, I'm sorry, i got to step away. In which you need not just tenderness, but also tough love. The logic of the Lamb is that he has set you free free to be holy, and he's not done with you. He is continuing to restore you in this world. I'll just conclude with Johnny Cash, one more line. Well, we're doing mighty fine, I suppose, in our streak of lightning cars and fancy clothes. But just so we're reminded of the ones who are held back up in front, there ought to be a man in black. The whole world became dark in that moment when Christ was on the cross. When he became a man that was ensconced in darkness because he was looking for people like you and me and Jackie Hill Perry who have broken backgrounds and who need his restorative love. So cling close to the one who was overcome with darkness, but also be that person for others in our world today. And may the holiness of God shape the humility of this church and the the holiness of this church as well. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, all of us in this room need forgiveness. All of us cling need to cling to you and to your holiness. We thank you that Christ humbled himself on the cross and surrendered his holiness and took on all of our sin, paid the price for us. This week when we're reminded of our sins, Lord, help us to look up, see the blood on the mantle that was slain 
to set us free and help us to walk in that freedom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.